I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Another football-centric podcast for us, shortly after the one we just did that reviewed the Super Bowl. But uh, my longtime colleague, somebody I greatly admire, had a little bit of time today and I didn't want to pass up on it. This is Jim Trotter, a reporter for NFL Media, as well as a longtime NFL reporter with stops at ESPN, Sports Illustrated, San Diego Union Tribune. And um, he is now back home after covering this year's Super Bowl, which is quite an, uh, quite an excellent game for 58 minutes or so. And I'm pleased to be joined by Jim Trotter. Jim, welcome back to the Sports Media Podcast. Hey, Richard. Appreciate you having me. All right. Before, Jim, we get to any kind of football stuff, you know, obviously, as you know, I follow you on social media, so I'm sort of at least familiar with what's going on. And perhaps the biggest moment of the Super Bowl, at least on an individual level, is video of Rihanna after her obviously phenomenal halftime performance being carted away in the uh, like the bowels of the stadium in Glendale. You shout out whatever you shout out, like great job or something like that, and she said she called you she called you boo, right? She said thanks, boo. So where take take my listeners through the process of how does uh, how does this happen? Uh, okay, um, so. My niece is a huge Rihanna fan and as well, you know, as one of my daughters. And um, so when my niece found out Rihanna was going to be doing the halftime show, she half jokingly said, you know, I want to go. I want to go simply for the halftime show, not for the game. So she couldn't be there. And so I wanted to try and do something for her. And I didn't get a chance to go to Rihanna's um, press conference during the week. And so um, this is going to be long winded. So stay with me. It's a podcast, Jim. We got all the time in the world. Okay. So I had a a seat in the press box for the game and um, I chose not to use it because I like to work out of the media room, which is typically in the bowels of the stadium. Because for me, knowing that I have to write after the game, it's easier to get to stay down on that floor level than it is to have to try and get back upstairs to the press box. So I get to the stadium thinking I'm going to be working downstairs in a press room and the media workroom is in a tent outside the stadium. So already my plan has been thrown off. So um, I start walking, you know, through the bowels of the stadium and I see that there's a photography room where the photographers work. And so I asked one guy, I said, Hey, you know, is, is there an open seat? Do you mind if I sit here? He's like, no, it's great. Go ahead. So I set up camp there. So fast forward, we get to halftime. And instead of going into the stadium, I wanted to watch it on television because the sound is better. You know, the 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 um, production of it in terms of the cutaways and this that, and the other are always so great. So the show finishes. And I thought to myself, I thought of my niece and I said, oh, let me try and get a shot of Rihanna leaving. 
So as I'm walking out to where I think all of the dancers and everyone are coming off, someone yells at me and says, against the wall, against the wall. <laughs> and I'm like, against the wall? I'm like, I'm trying to get over here because I see the dancers coming off in the distance. And I'm like, man, I'm going to blow this. And so we're standing against the wall for a couple of minutes. And I'm thinking, well, why are we against the wall? And someone says, oh, they're going to be driving down here. Never said who. But the minute they said driving, I said, oh, that's got to be her coming from the opposite direction from behind me. So just to be safe, I pull out my phone and turn on the video because normally I'm late with all that kind of stuff. And I'm not, you know, very um, technologically sound. And so I turn on the video right away to make sure I don't miss anything before the carts come. And then all of a sudden, here come the carts. And as she's passing by, I'm like, do I say something or don't I? And if I say something, what do I say? All these things are going through your head so fast. It's like, you know, when a pitcher throws a pitch, you've got that, you know, heartbeat before the ball arrives. But yet so many things goes through a batter's mind. And then I just said, my mind just said, say what you think. And I said, you know, Re, you killed it. And all of a sudden she said, thank you, boo. And I was like, you know, like, oh, you got to be kidding me. And um, so I took the video, edited it down. I sent it to my niece and my daughter and my wife. And they were all giving me grief about it. You know, they were like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And, you know, this that, and the other. And um, so my wife was like, uh, am I going to have to start calling you boo now? And um, so I posted it anyway. The next thing I know, the next day, I get something from Bleacher Report asking if they could run it. So I'm like, sure not thinking anything of it. And then all of a sudden, my daughter, my oldest daughter and my niece are sending me texts talking about you've gone viral. And my daughter said, you need to change your bio, your Twitter bio. So I'm like, okay. So I go on my Twitter bio and I, among the other things and I put Rihanna's boo. And um, so my whole thing, Richard, honestly, was just to have some fun with it. Look, Rihanna is young enough to be my daughter. And I think she's tremendously talented. And my respect for her goes far beyond anything she has done as an entertainer, which is substantial. It's really about also the empowerment of women and what she has been able to do um, in the business space in terms of becoming a billionaire, largely based off of, of um, you know, the makeup line and things that she has. So, you know, when I when I look at um, a young lady in terms of she's beautiful, she's talented and she's smart, all of those different things. It was like, you know what? This was in, in hindsight is pretty cool. I appreciate that uh, story very much. You know, the thing, Jim, like this, um, this video has been viewed. It's more than a million times for sure. if not multiple millions. It's interesting. Like, you know, you, you covered the NFL, so you're, you're well aware of like, um, mass interest, but on a sort of a singular personal note on your social media feed, it really does show you the power of celebrity, doesn't it? That your video literally like five seconds, like has been witnessed and seen by that many people. Oh, it's, 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 it, it's astounding. I, I, you know, I, I, I stutter here because I really don't have words for it. All it was, was a eight second clip of me saying you killed the and She's saying, thank you, boo. Why is there so much interest in that? But it, <laughs> I know, I know. It says it, something about the world. <laughs> yeah, but but it's the power of Rihanna where, you know, um, anything she touches, there's just this tremendous interest in and whatnot. And again, 
you know, I'm just having fun with it because I, I, you know, everything is so serious in the world today and I get it. And many times it should be. But this was just something to have fun with it. Look, I'm about to be 60 years old. Um, uh, re- just, you know, for me to be talking about her in that way and just having fun in that way, some people take it out of context, but it it, it is not meant to be the way that these individuals would take it. Yeah, I, yeah, I know. I, I think most, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think you, most people sort of see it for what it is. And it's like uh, it's one of the world's most famous people. And an interaction with that person, which is it's just uniquely interesting because most of us do not interact with that kind of fame. The one regret I have, if, if there is one, and, and it is only this one, is that I didn't think to just run up there and say, hey, can I get a picture? You know, yeah, um, tough it, though. Yeah, which would have would have blown my niece and my daughter away. <laughs> um, but and I think she would have done it or maybe that's just in my mind since. But since I'm her boo now. You know, I think she would have allowed me to at least have one photo. It could be, you know, never know down the road. We'll see what happens there. Exactly. All right. So not a great segue for this, <laughs> but uh, speaking, now I of ser- to, speaking of serious issues. Yeah. Now I want to ask you something serious. So you got a lot of attention and rightly so at the state of the commissioner annual press conference of which you have asked many questions over the years. This year, you asked Roger Goodell about the NFL's commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And you said in your five years at NFL media, you've never had a black person in senior management in the newsroom. And that's a problem because you cover a league, according to league data, where the the player population is 60 to 70% black. And you eloquently stated that's a problem because there's nobody in leadership making these decisions. Anybody should go on and watch it. It's a long question that Jim asked, really elegantly and smartly done. Um, you can find that um, uh, multiple places if you if you just Google Jim Trotter and and Roger Goodell. So I have a number of things, Jim, to ask you about that interaction. You also asked a similar question the prior year. So first off, why did you ask that question? Why was that an important question for you to ask of the commissioner on on um, on that day? Hey, Roger, uh, Jim Trotter, NFL Media. Um, You and other league officials have said that the league's commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion extend beyond the sidelines and beyond the front offices and is applied to all aspects of the company. I've worked at NFL Media for five years. During those five years, we have never had a black person in senior management in our newsroom. That's a problem because we cover a league who, according to league data, the player population is 60 to 70 percent black, which means that there is no one who looks like these players at the table when decisions are being made about how they are covered. More concerning is that for a year plus now, we have never had a full-time black employee on the news desk, which again is a problem because we cover a league whose player population is 60 to 70 percent black, according to league data. I asked you about these things last year, and what you told me is that the league had fallen short and you were going to review all of your policies and practices to try and improve this. And yet a year later, nothing has changed. You know, James Baldwin once said that I can't believe what you say because I see what you do. And so I would ask you as an employee, when are we in the newsroom going to have a black person in senior management, and when will we have a full-time black employee on the news desk? Well, Jim, um, I am not in charge of the newsroom, um, so I I think the, the, can I answer your question? As you point out, it's the same question you asked last year. 
And we did go back, and we have reviewed everything we've been doing across the league. And we are looking at everything from vendors that we're working with to partners that we're working with to ownership where we've seen significant changes in diversity just this year. And I'm not specific, do not know specifically about the media business. We'll check in again with our people, but I am comfortable that we made significantly progress across the league. I can't answer the specific questions. Some of the data you may have raised there may be accurate, maybe not. Last year I was told some of it wasn't. We'll get to you on that. We want to make progress across the board, and that includes in the media room. And so those are things that we'll continue to look at and hopefully make real progress to. I can't answer because I do not know specifically what those numbers are today. Because I believe that as a journalist, part of our job is to hold people accountable for the things that they say. And the commissioner in the NFL repeatedly over the years have said that diversity, equity, equity and inclusion are core principles of the NFL. And if that is true, then how can we have the type of data and numbers that we have as it relates to black people in the NFL, particularly in, in positions of power? And you know this, Richard, they don't let you get close to the commissioner often enough to actually have these dialogues. And so I knew I had asked him about it the year before, and I knew that there had been no progress, no real progress as it relates to um, the areas that I asked him about a year earlier. And so I, I felt that it was important to ask him in that situation because it's not something I haven't brought up internally over the course of the last year um, with, you know, the powers that be at, at the media group. So, you know, people think, some people think that I'm attacking the commissioner and I am not attacking the commissioner. All I am asking is that the league's actions reflect their words. And to this point, that is not what we have. And I believe it is critically important for there to be Black representation in senior management in the newsroom based on the fact that we cover a player population, again, according to league data, that is 60 to 70 percent Black. Because if we don't have that, it means that there is no one who looks like these players or who has shared the cultural experience that these players have had at the decision-making table when they are deciding how these men are covered, who covers them, and when they're covered. So for me, that is an issue because what I was brought up with in J school is that a newsroom is supposed to be reflective of the community that it covers. And that is not the case at the NFL, and therefore I wanted to ask the commissioner about it. The, the I had some people who... Um who asked me how one goes about um, getting to have a question of the commissioner. So before I ask you about Goodell's answer, uh, could you take my listeners through that process? Like, do you, is there like a sign up sheet? Uh, it does it basically, um, if you've asked like a question the previous layer, you, you get grandfathered in, how does it work for reporters such as yourself to get uh, to or that where you're able to ask a question of the commissioner in that, whatever, 60 minute allotment. Generally, what you see is they ask on the large, lar they ask um, or they go to representatives of the larger media companies. We, we tend to see that and both domestically and internationally. But what I do is knowing that um, Brian McCarthy, who is part of the communications team for the NFL, is the one who calls on people. I go to him beforehand and say, I have a question for the commissioner 
Is there some place I need to line up or some place I need to be to be able to ask my question? And he will typically say either there is a line or there is not a line or whatever. And then during the course of the press conference, I will text him if I feel like it's getting later in the press conference. And I will multiple times and say, you know, either just use a hand emoji or to say, you know, um, I'm in the back of the room or wherever, just to make sure that I've done everything that I can do to be in a position to ask a question of the commissioner. Are you, before I again ask, uh, I ask you about uh, Roger Goodell's answer. Are you surprised that they that they continue to have you up there, particularly this year? Um, no, I, I give them credit for that. Um, yeah, interesting. You know, because I think it becomes a bigger story if they don't allow me to ask a question. I agree. Because then I am I am definitely going to go public as many places as I can. And just what I said to you, outline the process um, for for being called on and to let people know that I I tried as best I could to um, be called on and was not called on. So Roger Goodell answers your question. I would sort of call it a I don't want to call it a non-answer, but it 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 certainly it was a non-answer. Yeah, okay. I was gonna say it just didn't it was an answer that didn't move the conversation forward at all. So from your perspective, um, to me, and this is again, sort of using my words, um, he kind of, he proclaimed that he wasn't in charge of sort of NFL media and didn't have the sort of specifics of what you were asking. I, I mean, the easy counter there is that He's well aware of the NFL media's contracts. The guy can tell you chapter and verse about what Amazon's doing and when ESPN Super Bowl rotation. So it's not really convincing of Goodell to sort of claim uh, ignorance there. That's sort of, you know, that's that's my definition of it. How did you see what you just called the non-answer? Um, just as you said, and, and if you watch the clip, you'll see I tried to respond to him when he said, I don't manage the newsroom. And... Um, my response to him is indirectly you do. And that's when he, he cut me off and said, can I answer? Can I answer? Because look, the reality is the league office sets our budget at um, NFL media. They know who the employees are and who they are not. The, the senior management at NFL media has to report its diversity numbers to the league office, as does every department in the NFL. So if he is unaware of these things, the people directly under him who are responsible for these issues should should know these numbers. And again, I've been there five years. There has never been a black person in senior management in the newsroom. That's it. And they can say they talk to black employees about stories they may be considering or whatever, which is fine. And you should. But when decisions are the ultimate decision is being made on whether or not a story is going to be covered and who is going to cover it and how it is going to be covered, we are not there. And so for me, that is a problem. And, and the NFL should have a problem with that because it keeps talking about wanting to be sensitive and receptive to concerns that Black employees may have, particularly what did we hear after the George Floyd murder? We heard the NFL go from talking about diversity overall to very specifically at times talking about black people. And so now that we've gotten away 
from the George Floyd murder were, you know, two, three years away. I don't hear them saying black people anymore. And for me, I, as a black man, that is a concern to me because I, I feel that that this is critically important in terms of our coverage and how we go about doing our jobs. I, uh, I watched the um, segment that you did with Michael Smith and, um, and Michael Holly, and they asked you, uh, had anybody reached out since the press conference from the NFL? And at that time, you had said no. So now we're even a couple more days away from that. Have you heard from anyone at the NFL on the, uh, on the question and the issue that you discussed with Roger Cattell? I've not heard from anyone from the league office. I've not heard from the senior manager in the newsroom. I've heard from one person, and that is one of the editors um, in the newsroom who I was pass crossing paths with um, as I entered the stadium. And we had a conversation um, just about why I asked the question that I have, I ask, and where he is on this whole issue. And that is it. And, that, and, and truthfully, Richard, I think that's the most disappointing thing to me is, is that if you're serious about this, I mean, really serious about it, genuinely serious about it. And I raised this question to you a year ago and no one from the league office has reached out to me one time to say, let's have a conversation and see if we can come up with ways to address some of these issues. It makes me question whether or not you're really that serious or whether you're all of these statements are just performative gestures to kind of deflect what's actually going on. I mean, it's impossible for you to answer, but I just will ask you sort of where your instinct lies. Do you anticipate someone will um, contact you no. in the near term? No. no. If you haven't done it by if you haven't done it by now, well, why would you do it going forward? Wow. That, I mean, I think that tells you a lot there. Well, I, I, I mean, like many others, Jim, I appreciate you asking those questions. You gave a very eloquent answer. Uh, to Michael Smith and Michael Holly about that in your sort of remaining years of covering this, um, you feel that you should give this voice because there's obviously a lot of younger journalists um, who would have more to risk than, than you. So let, uh, let me, you let can, me say this to you too, ahead. Richard, because you know, yeah. I've had so many people say, man, you're courageous. You're this. And, and, and I didn't do this for that. And, and truthfully, I don't want to be the story here, but I'm like, I told you, I'm about to be 60. I, I don't have long left in this business. And would I have asked the commissioner that question in my mid 40s when my kids are in elementary school or something like that? It probably would have been a harder question to ask knowing that I would no. I, I could potentially face some repercussions. I'm feeling here now is, look, right. whatever years I have left. And I mean this sincerely. I feel that my purpose in this business is to try and give a voice to the voiceless. I truly believe that because um, I am in a position now to do so. If I were to be fired and, and my contract is up in April, it has not been extended to this point. But if I were not to be brought back to um, the NFL media group, I will find another job. I will be. And if I did not be OK anyway, I've done enough over the years to, to try and set myself up. But I believe that my purpose left in this business is to try and give a voice to the voices and, and hopefully try and set an example, because I also teach at San Diego State part time to show these students um, how I believe it should be done in terms of trying to hold um, the powers that be accountable and make sure that their actions reflect their words. And I don't, I don't look down on anyone who might not ask that question because we all have our own things that we're dealing with in terms of, um, you know, responsibilities that we have to our families 
and whatnot and, and being concerned about our livelihoods. But really, when I when the core of this, Richard, and I keep coming back to this, is wanting people to be who they say they are. And I have said this to um, someone in the league office before, and I will say it again. As the most popular sport in this country, if not the world, I believe that the NFL has a social contract with its public. And I believe that when you say certain things, that you stand for certain things, that you should have to live up to that. And so when you say to the public that we are, that diversity, equity, and inclusion are core principles of what we do, then I expect you to live up to that. And diversity to me has become, how do I say this? It has been watered down to the point where I'm concerned about black people at this point, because I see within the company, if you start looking at promotion and retention rates, for us, we're near the bottom. And so I have a concern about that. And so when you say, well, our diversity numbers are up, that's because you're including all these different groups, including white women. But as black people, what are your numbers in terms of retention and promotion? They are not where they should be, in my opinion. Well, again, I, I thought you said something that's really interesting is that like you sort of recognize now that you have a, lot, you have a little bit of freedom when it comes to your family and where you are personally. And um and that's a good place to be for someone to be able to ask those questions. I want to finish up with some on the field stuff. And I saw, you should just let the um, listeners know that Jim Trotter is a Hall of Fame voter. So he, he's someone really like legitimately positioned to sort of um, answer a question or, or sort of have a discussion on this. I think it was Peyton Manning who said over the weekend that if Patrick Mahomes retired today, in Peyton Manning's mind, he's a Hall of Famer. I, I 100% agree with that. He's already won two Super Bowl MVPs, two regular season MVPs in a five-year span. But, you know, like in terms of like longevity, Jim, I think he's only played six years. I think I'm right. I mean, if it's seven, I apologize. But like, you know, like the reality is like if he did walk away today, he's 27 years old. It's even like less than Sandy Koufax in terms of like the amount of years like one went. So let me just play this little thought exercise for you. If you were in that room, Patrick Mahomes just wake woke up tomorrow morning and said, "You know what? I've done a lot. I'm gonna I'm gonna walk away from this game." Uh, how would you look at him as a Hall um, hands down? He's a Hall of Famer. Period. I don't even need to discuss it. Like Here's the way I look at that. We we had this sort of discussion to some degree about Terrell Davis before he went in the Hall of Fame, and people say, "Well, he didn't play long enough," or they had concerns about that and whatnot. And, and my point was, if, for instance, let's say we're, we're in school, right, and we're given an exam and the teacher says you can, you should be able to, once you're done, that's it for the day, right? So the class is an hour. I finish in 30 minutes. For someone else, it takes a whole hour. Should I have to sit there for those final 30 minutes and wait for that other individual to finish before <laughs> I can leave? Right. right? So if, if yeah. Patrick Mahomes like in six years has accomplished as much or more than Hall of than other Hall of Famers or people who may hang around to be aggregators, should he be penalized for that? I don't believe so. And so me as a Hall of Fame voter, the things that I look for are number one, impact on the game, consistency over a period of time, and and um were you the best at what you did? So we're going to get into this discussion going forward, you know, in the, in the future years about Eli Manning and Philip Rivers and this, that, and the other. And someone said to me, emailed me the other day and said, well, 
you know, Eli's got two Super Bowl championships. Patrick's got two. Um, what separates them? Because I don't believe Eli Manning is a Hall of Famer, period, as a voter. Um, I, I don't. Um, okay. So they say, well, he won two Super Bowls. You know, he beat the the um, the Patriots, you know, who were undefeated one time and whatnot. And I said he did. And I said I would argue that those Super Bowls were won by those defenses um, and how those defenses played in the postseason as opposed to the regular season. But having said that, am I simply looking at Eli Manning as a guy who won two Super Bowls? Do, so, so if we're giving him credit for that, do I discount that he had four one and duns in the playoffs? Do I discount the fact that he was never all pro? Do I discount the fact that he was never all decade? Do I discount the fact that he never won an MVP? Do I discount the fact that his interception to touchdown ratio um, was not of the level of others? So, and I'm not trying to dump on Eli Manning here. I'm trying to present a point that we've got to find a way to separate these quarterbacks as we go forward. And otherwise, if they just hang around with the way the rules are today for the passing game, these men are going to put up incredible numbers. People say to me, Phil Rivers is a Hall of Famer. I said, no, he's not. Not in my book. Because it's not just about um, accumulating numbers. It's about impact and championships, particularly at that position. And did you put your team in a position to win championships? And if you can't be that rising tide that lifts the boat consistently, then to me, especially at that position, you are not a Hall of Famer. Patrick Mahomes, five years as a starter, five AFC championship games, three Super Bowl appearances, two Super Bowl wins, two Super Bowl MVPs, a league or two league MVPs. Um, someone remind me again, then what's missing there? Cause I can't find it. Let me ask you a question. Just philosophical. I think I know the answer to this. Is there for you are, would, could there be other positions where if somebody had a similar six year stretch as Mahomes did, where you would say that person is in the Hall of Fame, or can that only exist in the quarterback position, which obviously has the well, to some degree. Again, we went through this with Terrell Davis. He he had, I believe, and I'm doing this off the top of my head, so forgive me if the numbers are wrong, but I think he only had six or seven years, um, you know, before the knee injury took him out. Um, we right. also went through this with Gail Sayers, right? He didn't have a long career. Yep. Um, so you can go through points uh, um, in time with Hall of Famers where they did not have long-term um, uh, career or long careers. So again, going back to the analogy about being a student in class and getting more done in half the time. So when we talked about Terrell Davis, my argument was Terrell Davis played in nine playoff games. Again, I'm doing this off the top of my head, so, so be kind. He played in nine playoff games, I believe. He went over 100 yards in eight of them. The only game he did not go over 100 yards, he had 91 yards, I believe. And that's because he didn't play in the fourth quarter because they were so far ahead, right? So eight, so again, yep. eight games of 100 yards or more. Emmitt Smith, the league's all-time leading rusher, playing behind arguably the dominant offensive line of his era and, and one of the best offenses of his era, played in, I believe, 16 playoff games. You know how many times he went over 100 yards? Eight. So Terrell Davis did the same thing wow. that Emmitt Smith did in terms of 100-yard games, but he did it in, what, seven fewer games? So should I penalize Terrell Davis that he didn't play in 16 playoff games, but yet he, he accomplished the same thing in terms of postseason? 
that Emmett did? No, I don't think I should. So anyone can be a flash in the pan. But when you put up those kind of numbers, and again, Terrell Davis averaged in the postseason, I believe it was 141.5 yards rushing, which was more than far superior to Emmett, Eric Dickerson, go down the line, any running back you want to choose. No one came, I believe, if memory serves me right, no one came within 30 plus yards of him in terms of postseason average per game. So am I going to penalize him for play, not playing 10 years? No, I'm not. And, and others feel differently. I want to be on record with that. Others feel differently, but that's how I personally feel about it. No, I appreciate that. I actually, as you were doing this, I looked it up. So Gail Sayers played in 68 career games, started 65 times. He essentially had two years in 70 and 71, which were injury years, only played two games. So essentially, Gail Sayers is in the Hall of Fame for five incredible years. So you're, that is your point um, uh, that's made by him. And I think you'd find it'd be very hard-pressed for you to find anybody who would say that Gail Correct. Sayers is not a Hall of Famer. So that that sort of ends your argument right there. Actually, for everything you said, too, it really speaks to just how great Terrell Davis was. Yeah, because he wasn't flashy. Uh, I mean, when you when you watch the – and again, right. we're in this 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 age now of, of sports center and highlights. Terrell Davis wasn't flashy. He didn't give you the Barry Sander runs where you're like, oh, my God, you know, I got to see this again. He was just that guy that, man, got tough yards and was straight ahead and was as physical as they come. And, and so – He's not going to be your your top 10, you know, your sports center top 10 or whatever, because there, there wasn't anything flashy about him. He just kicked your ass. That was it. Game after game, carry after carry. Here's the last one I want to ask you about. Um, one of the things we've seen over the last five years or so that I think has been very healthy is there's a lot of transparency with the Baseball Hall of Fame. There's There are sites now that, um, or, you know, sort of one site in particular that chronicles all the public um, ballots and sort of like, so at least you're sort of as a fan, if you're into it, you're informed by like how the ballots are coming in. And as a general rule, most of the Hall of Fame voters for MLB have made their votes public and they usually, um, you know, they usually write columns on it to you know, explain um, why they did that. I should give a shout out here to Ryan. I think it's Thibodeau, who's um, he's the Hall of Fame ballot tracker. He does a really great job when it comes to 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 baseball. So that's become content. I mean, I see all the we have a lot of voters at the Athletic Baseball who like always write their columns as to why these people are in or why not. And obviously, they have a lot of commenters who are either happy or unhappy. Pro Football Hall of Fame is different. Uh, you guys do not make your votes transparent. I wanted to know where you stand on that and if you happen to have noticed over the last, you know, whatever it's been, Jim, five or ten years, how at least baseball's flipped on this and they've become, the writers have become much more transparent than they were before. A handful of years ago, we were in the meeting room and I, and I asked them, I said, um, are we allowed to make our votes known public, public, you know, to the public? And I was told um, that there is not anything that says you can't, but we would recommend that you don't. And because they wanted to try and keep the, the um, everything as, as secretive as possible for as long as possible. And if you were to do it right after the vote, obviously, um, you'd know what if you'd everyone know vote, did it, right? yeah. you know, folks would be able to, yeah, yeah, they'd be, they'd, they'd know who the, the candidates are. 
So I get that. But here's what I, I've done and what I say, Richard. Um, I said to them, that's hard for me because as journalists, we ask for transparency and yet we're being asked not to be transparent. So once the class is announced, if anyone chooses to know, you know, I tell them who I vote for. I don't have any problem with that. But but this this process is a little harder than baseball. If I under, if I understand baseball balls process right, because they simply vote and then all those votes are tallied. Well, we have, we have cut downs. So, for instance, we go into the room with 15 modern era players and then we cut down to 10. And so the, the 10 that I voted for may not make it. All of them may not make it in that cut. So now I have to vote on people potentially that I didn't vote on, that I didn't vote for um, prior to that cut, if that makes sense. And then 10, we have to vote down to five. And so my attitude is always this. There have been times when the final five, I did not vote for all of those people, one or more of those people um, in the cut down process. But I always believe when you get to five, it requires an 80 Each of those candidates requires an 80 percent yes vote from the membership to be inducted. And I will always rubber stamp whoever those five are because the body has spoken. And I feel it would be selfish and wrong of me to say, number one, that my vote could hold someone out once they get to that point, if this is making sense. Um, and then it's also, it may be that I may not have thought they were more deserving, that player Y was more deserving than player X, but I do believe he's a Hall of Famer. And if he got to that point, I'm going to vote for him as well. So um, I don't know if I explained the process well, but but for me, I'm all for transparency. I think even on like a, like, I agree with you. Like, I think, you know, if we ask for people to be transparent when you're asking a player a question after a game, I think at least in this kind of setting, you kind of owe it to him. I would also argue, and maybe this is uh, looking at it too much like commerce or content, but I, I just think people would be interested in the thought process of people like Jim Trotter and how they approach this year's Hall of Fame. Like on a pure content play, it's just interesting content for me as an NFL fan to read. See, here's the problem as, as it's been explained to me in some cases. So let's say, for instance... I'm the Kansas City representative on the Hall of Fame Selection Committee, right? And let's right. say Patrick Mahomes comes up for vote. And I don't think Patrick Mahomes is a Hall of Famer, so I don't vote. Yeah, you're going to get crushed in your market. Absolutely. Not just your market, but potentially right. by your team. Which then, Yeah, right. That's and Which is a real thing. I agree. Yeah, so does that impact your ability to cover your team? So yeah, or does it or does it make you that? I mean, I hate to say this, or does it make you vote for that person because you don't want to deal with the fallout of of all that? Absolutely, stuff? all of that is real, and so that's one of the reasons that I've heard people say um, there is a reason to keep the votes private, and I get that. Mm -hmm. But you know, and maybe I'm wrong for saying this, but I always believe: look, if you can't stand the heat, as they say, then get out of the kitchen. Um, yeah. that's that's interesting. you should be able to defend your position. And um, I, I don't know what else to say. I, I, I feel for those who might be in that position. I'm not judging. I, I truly not. Everything I'm saying to you is just how I approach things. Yeah. And how yeah. I feel. Um, it doesn't make me right. And I always say that about voting. It doesn't make me right. But at least I try and come at it from a position where I've given thought to it. Yeah. My last one for you is because I actually don't know this. I'm curious about it. Do, do you have a like? what's the tent the the um the tenure on there like can you 
Can you continue to vote in the Hall of Fame if you are not like actively covering the league, or do they have some kind of cutoff where I don't even know how the cutoff would be in the, in a freelance world? Where, but is there a cutoff like I don't know if you're not covering the league on a on a day to day basis, you're no longer a Hall of Famer? Like, how does it how does it work with your um you know, whatever the word I'm looking for, like tenure or like how long you can be part of the. Community. Yeah, everything that I understand is that you are supposed to be um, actively covering the league in, in some form. Hmm. OK, so retired. So if I covered the uh, what I'm making this up, if I covered the Philadelphia Eagles in the 80s and 90s and I was a Hall of Fame voter, but I haven't I retired in year 2000. You're not going to be in that. You're room. not supposed to be as I as I understand it. You're not supposed to be. you're supposed to be actively covering now that is different than the baseball hall of fame which has a ton of voters who are no longer covering baseball. yeah no no that's interesting and and their argument is well we're voting on people we saw when we covered it um that i mean whether you agree with that or not that's their contention so the nfl is different the nfl hall of fame is different well um, be careful here because there are some people who get confused about this um the pro football hall of fame is different Pro yeah. football, yeah, right. Okay, right, right. right. Th there yes. are those out there who think this is the NFL Hall of Fame. The NFL controls it, which is that's a whole nother discussion. Correct. But right, right. for the baseball writers, I do understand part of that because I do think, truthfully, that you you saw those players in their prime. You, I agree. Yeah, I think there's a fair argument to make. Like, who would who who's best to like um, evaluate? Uh, I'm trying to make up like a ninety a nineties player, like Ken Griffey Jr., somebody who just started covering baseball five years ago or somebody who was covering Griffey when he was at his well we had that this year for instance Albert Lewis was among the finalists so how many of the voters actually saw Albert Lewis play yeah. you know um a couple of years ago we had Everson Walls um who was a finalist in I believe his 19th or 20th year of eligibility for the first time made it into the room how many wow. of the voters actually saw him play so yeah, not many, I would predict. Yeah, so I do think that there's something to that, um, that there is a recency bias, if you will, because one of the concerns in the hall, and I actually talked about this on air today, is I'm starting to wonder if there's going to be some pushback uh, going forward about first ballot um, or first-year eligible guys, because we are starting to put in so many first-year eligibles that is pushing everyone else down. And ultimately, what ends up happen happening is guys like, Everson Walls or Albert Lewis will wind up in the seniors category, which is sort of an abyss. Um, right. But we do it in part, I believe, is because these are the guys we covered that we've seen play. So we feel strongly about them as opposed to a guy that we never personally saw play. And so that, so I feel that. I feel that. And I think there's something real to that. Um because I do feel that, you know, there was one year, uh, a year or two ago, I think, where we put in, we have three spots for modern era players. Three of the five were first year eligible. This year, two of the five were first year eligible. You know, going forward, you know, there's going to be a year where we have, like, look at who retired this year. You've got J.J. Watt and, and Tom Brady who retired this year. You know, they're both going to go in first ballot or you have to believe it. And, um... And I can't even think of who else retired this year, but I'm sure there's someone else who's probably in that mix too. So, um, so yeah, I do believe that there's a thing such as recency, recency bias, and I don't know how you get past that. 
Uh, Jim, uh, this is a fascinating topic. I could talk to you about this for hours, but I'm going to let you go back to your life. Jim Trotter is a reporter for NFL Media and a longtime reporter. You've read his work uh, in many places, whether it's ESPN, Sports Illustrated, San Diego Union Tribune. You obviously see him on the NFL Network um, on a regular basis and certainly during the Super Bowl. Jim, it's always great to catch up with you, and uh, and I wish you nothing but the uh, – the best of health and success. Thanks, uh, thanks so much for joining me today on the Sports Media. No, I appreciate it, man. I always appreciate you having me. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to uh, Jim Trotter, who I uh, I always enjoy talking to. My uh, one of my favorite colleagues ever at Sports Illustrated. Uh, the guy's the real deal, and um, and that was a great discussion on the Hall of Fame uh, voting. Like I learned a lot there. Actually, there's a lot of stuff I did not know, so I appreciate his insight. Uh, this week, we had Chad Finn on Fox's Super Bowl coverage and James Andrew Miller on the passing of uh, Barry Sachs, a longtime ESPN um, producer, if you want to check that out. Podcast before that, Adnan Burke and Adam Amin together. They are always uh, good. Um, if you like football, we had Burkhart and Olsen uh, late January, Al Michaels in early January. Coming up later this week, if you're a NASCAR fan, Mike Joy and Larry McReynolds on uh, their jobs and uh, the Daytona 500. I have not done NASCAR one in forever, so that's pretty cool to get a chance to talk to those guys. If you like these kind of conversations, please leave us a five-star review and a nice note. That is very helpful. I want to thank Patrick Antonetti for all his hard work, a lot of hard work this week, multiple podcasts. And thanks to everybody, KS13, for their support. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.